I'm Kimberly Amici. Welcome to the Build Your Best Family podcast. This is a practical show to help you imagine, plan, and build your best family. We believe that the secret to having a happy family is not being perfect, but having purpose. Each week, I'll be sharing with you lessons I've learned and conversations I've had that will help you become who you want to be together. Today on this bonus episode of the podcast, we are talking about stress-free strategies for college application success. It's the audio of a webinar I moderated with college coach Kate Sondenberg just a few weeks back. I have a senior in high school who just went through this application process, so I know just how valuable these tips really are. If you have a child who's in 9th, 10th, or 11th grade who is considering going to college, this conversation is for you. And if you still have little ones and don't think you need this episode, share it with a friend. I promise they'll thank you. It's Kimberly Amici, and I am so excited to be here with you guys tonight. A little bit about myself. I am a family culture coach, which simply means that I am a certified life coach that helps people imagine, plan, and build their best family. I'm a writer, a podcast host, and I'm also a mom of three teenagers. So I have a 13, a 15-year-old, a 17-year-old, and I just got finished walking through the college application process with my oldest, and it was an eye-opening experience. We have received a few acceptances and we have been what feels like pins and needles waiting on the rest of those acceptances. And that will be probably another two months or so before we really have (laughs) the answers that we want. I can just tell you, you know, our experience was a lot less stressful than I had expected it to be. And one of the reasons is because I did go into it with a positive attitude, but also because I had people along the way that helped tell me what I could expect, what to keep in mind and assure me that my child was going to end up where they were supposed to be. And I'll tell you, that was a game changer. So that is why I am so thrilled to be a part of this discussion, because I absolutely 100% and passionate about providing people with the opportunity to get the information that they need so that they can go through this process well. So tonight we have with us Kate Sonnenberg. So Kate is a graduate of Princeton University and Columbia University School of Law. Prior to launching KS College Success, Kate worked as an application reader in the Princeton University Admissions Office, where she read thousands of undergraduate applications. And that is important <laughs> to have that experience. She also volunteered for nearly a decade with Princeton University Alumni School Committee and chaired the committee that interviewed students in Essex, New Jersey, Hudson, New Jersey. In addition to practicing law in New York and Seattle, Kate taught legal writing at the University of the District of Columbia, David A. Clark School of Law in Washington, D.C., and English Composition at the National University of Singapore. All right, we're not done yet. Kate is a member of the Independent Educational Consultants Association and the New Jersey Association for College Admissions Counseling. She regularly attends conferences, seminars, and webinars and has personally visited over 75 colleges where she often meets with admissions representatives to get the inside story about college admissions trends. So welcome, Kate. It's such an incredible pleasure to have you here today to be able to talk with everyone. Thanks for coordinating and facilitating the conversation. So, you know, what surprised me about the college application process was that it is not a linear one, nor is it predictable. And I'll have to tell you, you know, you know, raising kids is unpredictable to begin with. And you get to the end and you feel like, oh, 
just tell me what to do. And unfortunately, I don't think it's that easy. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about the college application process and what parents can expect. Okay. I think the first thing you've hit the nail on the head is that if there's only one thing that's predictable about the college application process, it's that it is not predictable. And it's for that reason that I always try to help students and their parents focus on what the student can control in the process. And there are a few things that they can control. One is that they can build a college list that is balanced and that is appropriate for them. And we can go into that a little bit in in greater detail, but having a a set of schools to apply to where you'll be happy at no matter which one you end up is something that you can control. Another part of the process that you can control is the essay. Now, I'm not sure if everyone um, here tonight is completely familiar with the application process, but there are basically two ways that you can apply to college, either through a college's website directly, we call that a proprietary application, or you can apply, which is more common, through what is known as the common application or the coalition application. And those are platforms that allow you to apply to multiple colleges from that one platform. And the common application is the, the most common of them, hence its name. But whether you're applying via the common application or the coalition application, there is an essay. And that essay is possibly the most anxiety-producing part of applying to college. And the reason is, is that it's writing like a student has never done before. Even if you are a gifted writer, even if you are a creative writer, even if you are the kind of kid who is totally in touch with themselves and writes poetry, this is a different kind of writing. Because students feel that so much is writing on that essay, there's just some built-in anxiety, and that can also create some writer's block and so forth. So a big part of what I do um, is work with students to write an essay that is strong and that presents them in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is it that colleges are looking for? So we know that this essay is important, but what else do they want to see when your, our children are applying to college? So there really are two main components of what colleges are looking for. And the first is the academic record of the student, because colleges want to admit students who are going to be able to be successful on their campus. And that can mean different things for different colleges. So let's take a kid who's a phenomenal dancer, but they want to go to MIT. They also need to be strong in STEM. And, you know, there are programs where you don't need to be strong in STEM. So colleges are looking at your, your academic performance in high school. And people often think, well, that means my GPA, but it's much more nuanced than your GPA because every high school has different grading scales. Every high school has different distributions of grades. So what I always say to families is it's your, your GPA in context. What classes did you take? Did, some schools will offer a maximum of five APs or maybe no APs. Schools out in California, kids can take up to 15 APs over the course. Crazy, right? But 
if you are in a school district where there are no APs or in a school district where you or independent school where you can only take six APs, that's not held against you. Colleges are looking at how did you do academically in your setting, in your high school. And then the other part of what colleges are, are looking for is who you are as a person. Maybe you could even define it in one word as what's your character. And I think that people don't necessarily believe that colleges care about this, but I know because I spent a couple of years in the admissions office that colleges absolutely care about this. In fact, most colleges could fill their class with just academically qualified students three or four times over. So who you are as a person is critical. And that makes sense if you're applying to a residential college because think about a normal week in college, you may be in class 12, 15 hours of that week. So what are you gonna do with the rest of your time? How are you going to engage? How are you gonna make that a community that's better for everybody? So character is very important. And that really gen, you know, typically gets conveyed through what you've done in high school and your activities and how you let colleges know about that. Right, what about activities outside of school? How important are they? It doesn't matter whether you do activities exclusively in school or exclusively out of school or a combination. It's really how you're engaging. And, you know, what is not important is the absolute number of activities. What matters is the depth and the breadth and the authenticity of that engagement. And I know people think, oh, my gosh, there's on the common application, there's 10 spots for activities. What happens if I only have five? If you have five great activities, that is much more meaningful than if your seventh, eighth and ninth and 10th activity are clearly things where you meet maybe once every semester. It, it, college admissions officers know how to, to sort of sift through that. And, and what they really want to see is depth, breadth and authenticity. Yeah. So when my daughter went through this process, I wanted to be a part of the entire thing. However, <laughs> she had other ideas. How much should a parent, and eventually we did kind of get on the same page. I was able to help her. We were able to have some good conversations, but it's not rare for a child to kind of want to, you know, not share their essay or, or handle some of this process on their own. So from your perspective, how should a parent expect their child, how much should a parent expect their child to take charge of the process and how much should they expect to be involved? So I think that the application process itself really needs to be looked at as a bridge between childhood slash high school and, and young adulthood. And sort of if, if parents can think of the, the application process as as their child's first step toward adulting, it may be easier to step back and say, okay, I want my child to grow up. I want my child to separate. I want them to be successful in their first semester of college. And so if this process can be a bridge toward that goal, that can help parents step back and let their students or their children drive the process. But that doesn't mean that there's not a place for parents in the process. I actually have a parent curriculum so that I can keep moms like you and moms like I was totally engaged. And, and one of the best places for, for parents to, to stay engaged is in the college research. Now, right now, because of COVID, that's happening online. And in some ways, that's easier because you don't have to travel. In some ways, that's harder because online is just not the same as being on a campus. 
but I have worksheets for parents to um, help keep them engaged, whether it's virtual research or actually at an admissions office, visiting a campus and taking a tour. And another place where I encourage parents to get involved, and this fits in with the idea of letting your child start becoming an adult, is to talk honestly and openly and early and often about finances because private colleges are expensive. Or if you are going to go out of state to a state university, that is expensive. And parents need to be forthright with their children about how much money the family feels is appropriate or available to to spend for college. And sometimes it's not about how much money a family can spend. It has to do with your values around money and your values around education. And, and there is no right or wrong there. But But it's great when kids can know that ahead of time so they can avoid a situation that that students find themselves in all too often where they've been admitted to a college, they're excited to go, and then they discover that it's just not a financial, financially feasible, a financial reality for that family. So that's a great place for parents to, to get involved. Yeah. You know, we had the conversation about money. We just didn't have it with just my daughter who was applying. We kind of rounded up all the kids and gave them all the talk. So that <laughs> by the time my son gets there, he's not surprised either. But um, for his family, that's an important conversation to have for sure. It, and it's a hard conversation because I think a lot of times families think, you know, well, that's a grown-up conversation and that's not a conversation for kids. But this this is a place where even if the, that is your philosophy, it might be worth thinking about about having the conversation. At some point, you're going to have to deal with it. So better to deal with it earlier in the process than at the, the last minute. Yeah. And I know one thing that you say is that we can focus on the process and not the outcome, correct? Yes. Yes. I, I That is a, a big, big a pet peeve of mine because very often people will come and say, my son's dream school is this or my daughter's, you know, has to go someplace. And, and I ban the I ban the word dream school. That is, you know, a four letter word in, in my practice. I like to focus on fit. And I say that fit has three components, sort of a stool. And the first we've talked about a little bit is financial fit. It has to be a financially feasible place for your family. And the second is academic fit. And that does not necessarily mean it's college number one on the U.S. News and World Report list. It means where are you going to thrive? In fact, I was doing some research last night and I was reading uh, Malcolm Gladwell and, and he makes the point that sometimes you are better off being a big fish in a small pond. And he shows some really interesting research about how kids who have the same SAT scores, but one is in the middle of their class at a super competitive school and one is at the top of their class at a more moderately competitive school. The one at the top of the class at the more moderately competitive school has so much better outcomes. So, you know, it, you have it, this is a complicated thing, finding your academic fit. And then, and this may actually be the most important, it's your social fit. Because I had a student this year and he said to me, he wants to be a doctor and he wants to major in biology. And he said, you know, I really wasn't impressed with Columbia University's biology department. I, I don't think it's good enough. And I said, you know, I think it is. I, they may have a terrible website. They may do an awful job presenting their department of biology, but I am sure that you can find professors and research and labs and at Columbia University. So I, I know that all of the schools that we're talking about, you know, 
have great academic offerings for kids. But Columbia might not be the right place for you if you don't want to be in a big city. And so I focus a lot on the, the social fit. I mean, there are some kids who absolutely do not want to go to a school with any Greek life. Okay, that's fine. There are some kids who absolutely have to go to a school where there's, you know, great football and where a lot of the campus life revolves around sports. And all of those are are valid preferences. It's just that you have to know what they are. So I work with people a lot in trying to get that three-legged stool to not be wobbly so that there's a good financial, academic, and social fit. Yeah, I love that you say that because there is a pressure and not to criticize guidance counselors because I knew they're doing their best job, but there's like this pressure to have the reach school, the safety school, the dream school. And it's so frustrating because you're right. Culture really matters. It is, it is you know, a huge predictor in the success of organizations and businesses yeah. and families and even in schools and students for sure. So I, I talk about a balanced list. And in when I see a balanced list, whether it's an academically, or I would say even if, if there's a low probability of getting in. I mean, there are just some colleges where there's a five to 7% admission probability. And I don't care how fantastic you are. Everyone, that's a low probability of getting in as a wild card. So I will have some colleges that are like that on someone's list. I'll have some colleges where there's a, a medium probability of getting in and some colleges where there's a high probability of getting in. But those colleges are similar. Right. In that, you know, they may be different in their admissions probabilities, but the kinds of places are pretty similar and the kinds of kids are pretty similar. Mm-hmm. And I know guidance counselors, I mean, they, they're, you know, I, I think that's why a lot of people look outside of, of their high school for, for help, because there are some places where guidance counselors have upwards of a hundred students. And there are some places where even if you have 25 kids, it can be difficult to get, you know, all of the students because you have other demands on your time. You may have 25 seniors, but you may also have 25 juniors and sophomores and and freshmen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the elephant in the room, COVID college in the midst of COVID. I know a lot of people have a lot of questions about that. So in your opinion, how do you think we need to be thinking about what's ahead for our kids? So I I think that we're all shell-shocked and stunned that we're still talking about this and, and tired. And the thing is that even if by this summer we've gotten everybody vaccinated and classes, you know, students all over the country are going back to school and colleges are going back to school. The the ripple effect of COVID is not over. And and one of the places where we see that most significantly is in standardized testing. So in some parts of the country right now, kids still can't take, juniors cannot take standardized tests yet, either because they are being canceled. Many kids, sophomores um, and juniors discovered that their PSATs are going to be canceled. Families may decide that they don't want their students to have to go into a room with a mask for three hours to take a test. So some kids may have their first shot at a test in the fall, and it's pretty clear that the more often, up to three times that a student takes a test, the more likely they are to do better. So we may still be next year dealing with kids where they're going to have one shot at a test. And uh, colleges, they all, almost all of them went test optional this year. And very slowly, they're beginning to announce that they're going to be test optional, many of them again for next year. Last week, Cornell announced and Williams College announced. So I think we're going to see 
more, if not all, of the collagens that were test optional this year uh, be test optional for next year. But that's, a, you know, that's an uncertainty. And, you know, in an uncertain process, adding extra uncertainty is, is not fun. And another place where we're going to see, you know, see the ripple effect is in activities. I mean, you know, kids who are currently juniors had their activities curtailed in the spring of their sophomore year, and they've had most of their activities curtailed this entire year. And even if everyone's vaccinated this summer, there aren't vaccines get approved for 16 and under. So it's not clear that you know camps or residential programs are going to travel programs are going to take place next summer. So I just think that people have to be as flexible as possible. And, you know, try and be as resilient as possible. And what the colleges want to see from students is really how did you rise to the occasion? So, you know, they understand soccer was canceled or debate club was canceled or your science Olympiad competitions were canceled. But they want to know what did you do? You know, basically, as I put it, how did you make lemonade out of lemons? And so. I, I, I do think that this this you know junior class, the class of 2022 from high school, is still going to be feeling the ripple effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. All right. So real quickly, before we go into the Q&A, what is one thing that you want to share with parents that are a little apprehensive about the process? And then maybe tell us some of the ways that you can help. So I think that remembering that you need to focus on what you can control, that there are lots and lots and lots of wonderful colleges, not just the ones that everybody knows and the names that you know roll off the tongue. And there's a, a, a right fit for every student. And it's finding, I think the first thing that I do when I work with students is help them think about who they are and then once they have a good sense of who they are, we move on to finding the colleges that are good matches and then to presenting in an application uh, a picture of the student so that the college also agrees that they are a good fit. And, and so that's how I try to make the process a growth experience and a, a positive experience and try and sort of minimize the anxiety. I, I offer a free 30-minute consultation for all of uh, my prospective clients where I can get to know your needs more specifically and explain where, where I might be of service. And, you know, my hope is that the process of applying to college is a positive one because I think it, it helps situate a young person in the best possible way to, to flourish as a freshman. It's a tough transition. For all kids, I mean, no matter what, no matter how well we prepare them academically, no matter how well we prepare them socially and emotionally, it's a transition. And uh, I think if, if the process of applying to college has been a positive one, that helps with the transition. And, and that's my goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My kids, my daughter did not have the pleasure of working with Kate. We worked with somebody else, but I'll have to say there's just, there's a specialty in the knowledge of having someone kind of come alongside you and be able to answer the questions, you know, especially on those evenings when you feel like, I don't know what I'm doing. What <laughs> Does this make any sense? I have so many questions. It's really good to have that support for sure. Yeah. And I have a very high touch, highly personalized practice. I, I only work with 15 students a year and, and that's you know by choice. 
and the, the students have my um, cell phone number. They, they don't call me, but they don't call anybody because that's just they don't communicate that way. But I do get texts, um, and the parents too. And I really, my my own twenty one year old daughter, and she, of course, she's been home more than we would anticipate because of COVID. So she didn't go back to school last spring, and it's been a very extended Thanksgiving break. <laughs> she's going back to school next week, but. She knows my students' names and she'll say, oh, are you talking to so-and-so? Oh, are you talking to so-and-so? Because I do feel quite invested in them. And I think that all of us who do this, you know, we like teenagers and we believe strongly in the value of education. All right. So we can open it up to some Q&A. Okay. So my daughter asked, how many colleges do you suggest applying to? This is a good question because it costs money to actually apply to these colleges. Every once in a while, you see a special... We, we kind of, of course, applied before the week they ran the special of free application. <laughs> yeah, talk to us about that list. Okay. So, you know, conventional wisdom is between eight to 12 colleges. This year, I there was an extraordinary surge in the number of applications. And what happened is there was actually a very small, absolute increase in the number of applicants using the Common App, 1%. But they applied to 10% more colleges per student. And that is really why these numbers, you hear these numbers, Harvard went up 48, I don't know, 57% and Dartmouth went up. They they were scary, scary numbers. And they were really only at the most um, competitive colleges, the ones that are the most uh, sort of low chance of admission. So I think 8 to 12 is a good number this year. Many of the students I work with actually applied to 14 colleges. That That's sort of where I said, we're done. I had one super tense student who did apply to 16 schools or was about to apply to 16 schools and then was admitted early decision and didn't have to go through with all of that. And I was grateful for him to, to not have to, to turn out all of these extra essays. But I think in a, a normal year, 8 to 12 is a, is a good range. I'm not sure that for, I don't know how, what year your daughter is, but I'm not sure if next year it will go down to eight to 12, you know, maybe closer to that 12 to 14 range. But, but after that, if you have a smart list and a balanced list, you should be, oh, so she said she's only a freshman. So I, I, I'm really hopeful that by the time your daughter is a freshman, we are living in a, a more stable and normal world, please. And an 8 to 12 is a good list. Yeah. And I think doing research ahead of time really helps. It helps you narrow down. I yes. mean, my daughter's applied to probably two colleges now that she's realized doesn't really even have the major she wants. And so it's kind of like, you yeah. know. Yeah. We absolutely want good research. And as some students don't apply with a specific major in mind, which, you know, just means that you use different factors for the narrowing. I mean, some, like I said, it could be, I have to have great Greek life, or I have to have a great sports team, or I have to, you know, be in a school under you know, 3,000 people. I mean, when my, my own child, one of them started the, the search process, they wanted to go to a school that was in one building. I said, I don't think that really exists. <laughs> 
you know, whatever the parameter is yeah. or parameters, you, you know, you work around those. And, and listen, it's, it's fantastic if it's, if it is a major, but sometimes it's not. Right. Yeah. So we did have someone comment that they heard that college applications were up and you said that's predominantly for the Ivy leagues, not necessarily. No, not just the Ivy. No, I mean, at, at the, I, I would say, you know, beyond the Ivy leagues, I would say, but at the, at the colleges where they're, where there's what I like to refer to as a, a low chance of admission. So where the selective selectivity is, you know, uh, under 15% give or take. But for example, at the SUNYs, which are some phenomenal institutions, I mean, you can get a first rate education at any of them, but in particular at Stony Brook or Binghamton, the applications are down by 20%. Mm. So you you get these the headlines because they are you know sort of enticing and they're they, they get people all agitated but they're it's a much more complicated picture and the truth of the matter is is that if there's been a one percent increase in the absolute number of application of applicants there's just not that many more students so you know if you applied wisely to a list of colleges that sort of covered the gamut, I think that you can be confident that your child is going to have good choices in the spring. Yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier, and someone asked this question, you mentioned early decision, regular decision. Can you talk a little bit about early decision, early action, regular decision? What are the differences and what are the advantages? Yes. Okay. So early decision means that you are committing yourself to going to that school. And there are some admission advantages because, you know, it's sort of like dating, right? Colleges like to know that they are going to be your first choice. Well, what better way of, of demonstrating that you really want to go to that college than applying there and saying, if you take me, I'll go. And colleges care about that because they care about what's known as their yield rate. So that's the percentage of kids they admit who choose to matriculate there. And they care about that for reasons that are not always the best reasons because they can affect their rankings in different, you know, U.S. News and World Report in different rankings, but they do care about it. So early decision gives you often an admissions edge. But the downside of early decision is that you really have to know that that college is your fit, your three-legged stool fit, and especially with respect to financial aid. Now, you are able to decline an early decision offer if you cannot afford it. If the financial age package really just was not what you thought it was going to be, but that's difficult. And it's really a situation you don't want to find yourself in. So I don't recommend early decision for anybody who wants to comparison shop the finances. Early action is allows you to apply early, but you're not making any commitment. You don't get an admissions edge when you're applying early action. But you do find out if you got in. And so that's a great feeling to know that you have a choice in November or December of your senior year. And that might affect the other colleges on your list. You may be able to take some off or maybe just tweak your list a little bit. Regular decision, you know, those applications are usually January 1st, some as late as January 15th. And then you'll find out typically mid-March, although this year, because there's been such an increase in applications at some schools, many of them have pushed back their notification date to actually early April. And there is one other admissions option, which is rolling admissions. And many colleges have that. And some actually open up their applications as early as August 1st 
for your senior year. So for example, Wake Forest has rolling admissions and kids can know before they go to school in September if they've gotten into some of these rolling admission schools. So they're not, there's no commitment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So someone asked if schools continue test optional, if two students with similar grades apply to a school, one takes the ACT or SAT and one does not, what preferences are given to the ones who take the test? Okay. So this is where I come back to, to the where we open really, Kimberly, with mm-hmm. college admissions is not linear. You can't plug in X variable, Y variable and, and get an answer to that question. Test scores valuable for corroborating a student's academic record. And in about 65%, 70% of students, there's really a correlation between their grades and their test scores. So all the test scores are doing are saying, yeah, you know, John really did get an A in honors biology. His dad, the doctor, didn't do the work because this is a kid who's capable of getting an A in honors biology. So in the absence of corroborating information that you can get from a test score, colleges are going to be looking very closely at teacher recommendations, very closely at your guidance counselor recommendations, very closely at your essays to make sure that you are actually capable of doing the work on campus. But they're not going to say, all right, so student A submitted the test scores and student B didn't, and therefore we're going to take student A. It's more information, and information is usually helpful in in making difficult admissions decisions, but it's just not that linear, and you can't say you didn't get into X place because you didn't submit test scores or that you did get in because you did submit test scores. And I do think that Colleges are going to be getting increasingly adept at making the admissions decisions in the absence of test scores and that they are going to be increasingly less important in college admissions. I mean, one, you know, in addition to the health pandemic, we also had the the social upheaval and, and turmoil of this past year. And I think that it really revealed a lot of, I mean, and the pandemic did too, a lot of the inequities in our society and colleges are have always been, but are increasingly transparent about their commitment to diversity and equity and access. And test scores are really a, a roadblock for many under, you know, underrepresented minorities, first generation students or low income students. And that's another reason why their their value is really being diminished in the application process. Mm-hmm. So with, with it most likely being test optional, how do you decide to submit a test? So let's say a handful of kids do get to take a right. test. How do we know if it helps or hurts? When do we know? Right. So what I have advised students to do is to only submit their test scores if they are in the upper end of the typical test score. So if you are applying to college, you can find what's known as the middle 50%. So they'll tell you our range of, let's say the ACT is between a a 28 and a 32. So that means that 25% of the students who are at school have a score above a 32, 25% have below a 28, but the middle is between the 28 and the 32. So if you have a 32 or above, I would say, sure, submit your test score. 
But if you have a 28 or a 29, I have advised students not to submit their test scores. I think that's a rough you know, rule of thumb. It, you know, it also varies. Colleges that have always been test optional or I, I know how to evaluate an application without test scores, and I'm much more comfortable telling the student don't apply there. A school that's known to care about test scores, I'm a little less inclined to say don't submit test scores. So, you know, it's a little bit more nuanced than just the middle 50%, but that's a, a roadmap that you can use. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where your experience comes in because like, you know, the colleges, every college has a different personality. They really are looking right. for different things. They really do care about different things. And it's important to know exactly what that college cares about for right. sure. Right. Absolutely. So, okay. Let's say some stuff does go back to normal, or at least has been <laughs> happens the way it has in the past. What, what is it? How do you advise clients on taking the ACT versus the SAT? So what I advise clients to do is uh, I, I work with some different test companies, some, some local in New Jersey and some that are more national, and, and they will let you take a diagnostic. They will administer a diagnostic test. And, you know, most of the time students do pretty much the same. If you're a strong test taker, you tend to do pretty well on both of them. If you're mediocre, mediocre, so forth and so on. But you, you can get a diagnostic test to, to help figure that out. If you are absolutely hate science, you don't want to take the ACT because there's a science section. And if you're a slower rather than, than quick test taker, you probably don't want to take the ACT because the, the, you have less time per question. But if you hate math word problems, you may not want to take the SAT because their math problems are a little trickier. So there are diagnostics, and that's what I have all my students do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another question is, does a school like Princeton or Harvard only look at a few top students, such as the valedictorian or the salutorian, or the non-linear, i.e. whole person, character, AP classes, service to community, et cetera? Does that come into play? So, yes. The, the answer is, it, it is the, the, the latter and not the former. So, it's what's known as holistic admissions. And it is not uncommon that a school like Harvard or Princeton will take not the person who is has the highest GPA in a class, but might take the person who has really not even a comparable GPA because they've done some really fantastic outside of school activities. So it, it's, it is holistic admissions. Uh, I know that for a, a fact because I, I read applications for two years at Princeton and there is just no question that we are looking at much more than, than the numbers. Now there are, you know, if you are applying to a large state school in the past, there were some grids where if you had a certain GPA threshold and a certain test score threshold, you were going to be admitted. But even now, that's really being reassessed and reevaluated because they didn't have the test scores at many of these schools this year. So I think we, we are probably going to see that less and less, even in these larger um, public institutions. Yeah. Somebody asked if our if your high school doesn't offer the AP class your child wants, for example, psychology, is it possible to take it over the summer between your junior and senior year? And if so, how do colleges view that? So I am not sure that you can take specifically an AP class over the summer. I think that there may be places where that's possible, but usually what people will do in the in the summer is do a pre if they want to do an academic summer program they will do a pre-college program on a college campus for example 
Brown has a great pre-college program. And you might take a psychology class. It's not going to be AP psychology, but that's going to show to college your interest in, in, the, in the subject area. And if you do well, that's going to show college that you're capable of doing college-level work. So there are lots of ways of, of demonstrating your abilities and of pursuing your interests over the summer. So I wouldn't focus too much on whether it was an AP class or or a comparable class. And I think that, you know, colleges do value intellectual curiosity. So if you're taking the class because you have a genuine interest in the class and you aren't able to do it in your high school and you have a great experience and you convey that in your application, then that's, that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Someone asked, we have sophomores and wonder when we should start looking at schools and getting our kids into the right frame of mind to start planning for college. Do you start now or you wait until your junior year? So I do work with people starting in their sophomore year. I meet quarterly with the students, you know, when their grades come out, we do some planning for the summer. And of course, this summer is going to be a little tricky and make sure that the sort of the curriculum, not just for junior year, but junior and senior year is is building and growing. And I am a huge proponent of tutors. So if you're struggling, I, I you know, will talk to mom and dad about getting a tutor on board because I really don't see the benefit in, in struggling. But it's difficult when you visit colleges, let's say this summer, college campuses do open up and you're you're able to go and visit as a sophomore. That's fantastic and it's information, but you can grow and change a lot from the summer before your junior year to the fall of your senior year. So those trips are are nice, but they you may have to revisit like you, you know if you think some places your kids said, that this is where I want to go. I know this is where I want to go. And you saw it the summer after your sophomore year before I would advise a student to apply ED to that particular school. I would say, go back and see it now that you're a senior and make sure that it's really what you remember. And of course, you know, when you start the search, you have less information, you have less points of comparison. So looking as a sophomore is fine, but, you you know, it, it, it's sort of like anything. The first time you make a cake, it's probably not as good as the fifth time you've made the cake. And I think that's true for visiting colleges, too. But you have to stop, start somewhere. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. I have a handful of friends who, if they were vacationing somewhere and there was a college campus by, they try to get a tour, drive through the campus just to get their, start to get their kids familiar with it. And for yeah. us, since our kids are so close in age, when we were taking my daughter as a junior, we signed up my freshman child because we're like Smart. you're with us let's sign up let's go see it <laughs> yeah. I think it's never too early to start getting the kids in the framework of like what does my future look like where do I see myself and just be exposed to the whole process and, and one thing I always say um, and this is pretty standard from from college counselors is that you should visit a small college and you should visit a big college and you should visit an urban college and you should visit a suburban college and you should visit a rural college. And, you know, my own son who graduated from a small liberal arts college in New England, when he started this process, he said, I want to go to a big school in the city and I don't believe in a liberal arts education. I want to do business. And he ended up at the total opposite. But it was good that he visited a lot and then came to his own decision. Yeah. All right. So what, in your opinion, on IB courses, do do those courses give you any advantage over regular curriculum or AP courses? So I think what what 
colleges like the IB curriculum, and I think they also like an AP curriculum, but what it, it, it does show is that you have maximized the curriculum and options at your particular high school. So if you are at a school that offers the IB diploma and you opt not to take that or do that, but you're taking some of, you know, let's say you opt not to do the full diploma, but you're taking some IB classes. And sometimes students do that because the math is a little bit weird with the IB and they want to be really accelerated in math. And you're showing a college that you've taken these really rigorous classes. They're not going to say, oh no, why didn't you do the full IB diploma? On the other hand, if you've done a really rigorous curriculum, that's a combination of IB or full IB, you are in a different situation than someone who has taken none of those classes because it is, as I say, your grades and context. How much did you push yourself? Mm-hmm. So, and it, it is a well-respected curriculum. I mean, some schools don't offer it and, and some schools don't offer APs and they are among the most elite independent schools in the country and colleges know that too. So it's not so much if it's IB or AP or, or whatever, accelerated or whatever it's called. It's really how much did you push yourself in your context? Mm-hmm. What do you advise sophomores to do this summer since most of the summer programs are likely going to be canceled or online? Right. It's a, it's a a dilemma. And I, I, I think that it's important to follow your interests and follow what excites you and, and, and try. And if you are interested in the environment and you can clean up parks this summer, that, I mean, I, you know, cleaning up may not sound like the, the most fun, but it is good for the environment. That's a valuable thing to do. And it, I think, maybe a healthier thing to do than to take yet another online class that's being offered on environmental science. So you want to be creative, but what you really want to do is follow your interests and, and do things that are going to have some intrinsic value to you because when they have intrinsic value, they can also have an extrinsic value. If they only have extrinsic value, that becomes pretty apparent in an application. So, uh, you know, it, it is tough. I mean, I, I I feel for, that's why I say that the ripple effects of COVID are, are going to impact not just this year's junior class, but, you know, it's going to be around for a bit because it is definitely, yeah. it's definitely affecting options. Yeah. And I think that we can be creative if we really set our minds to it for sure. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, this is the, the make the lemonades out of the lemons. I mean, I had students who did blogs and kids who delivered food for Meals on Wheels. There are things that you can do. It's just that you have to look under the rocks a little bit more. Yeah. But I would really, especially for a sophomore, really encourage them to follow their interests. And if you are, do something that excites them. Mm-hmm. So it looks like we're wrapping up here. Does anybody have any other questions? Okay, so it is, is it worth it to take college courses, take community college courses while in school? So, so those are dual enrollment classes, and those are extremely common in some states. In California, I think that maybe 50% of the students have dual enrollment classes. And, and like an AP class, and I know in, in Montclair, where I'm situated, um, I don't know what happened this year with it because of COVID, but in the recently, they did 
work out a relationship with not a community college, but with Montclair State for students to be able to take classes. And dual enrollment classes really fit into the same category as IB classes or AP classes. They show that a student is pushing themselves to take advantage of the most rigorous curriculum that they can. So those are always good things to do. I I don't think you need to go out of your way to do a dual enrollment class. But again, you know, if if it's a good option and it fits with your schedule, then Mm -hmm. absolutely valued from the point of view of college. Yeah. And some people do that as a financial strategy as well. Maybe but that's not but not if you're in high school. Because right. when you, if you take a, a community college class when you are in high school, that's going to count as a, towards your high school gotcha. diploma. So you would be applying as a high school senior. But the community college to four-year college route is is very common. And I have this weird thing on my screen, sorry. And is a great cost saver. And I if, if UCLA, for example, which is you know one of the premier research institutions in the world has made a commitment that for every two first-year students that they admit, they will admit one transfer student. The University of Texas has a similar kind of program. New Jersey has a less well-known program. So yes, community college is, is fantastic. Yeah. Okay. All right. So someone said this conversation has been educational. When do you start, when do you advise a student start working with you? So you did mention possibly sophomore year. Right. So, so, so you know, you, I, I do have sophomores that I am working with this year. And as I say, I meet with them just maybe four times, five times, six times over the course of the year. But really, you know, the fall or if you are a junior, then, then now is the time, whether it's me or, or another college counselor, just to start. Because what you don't want, I remember I told you about the student who was going to apply to 16 schools and thankfully got in early. He, he really intended to do it by himself. And he... I started working with him in September and that was not optimal. It turned out great. And I, you know, he was a great writer and it was wonderful, but I hid my anxiety because that's my job. And after it all worked out, he said, were you worried in the beginning? I said, well, now that it's over, I'll tell you the truth. I was a little bit anxious. So, you know, I prefer not to be in in that situation, not really for me, but for the student, because then it doesn't get to be a growth experience. Then it just gets to be, we've got to get this done experience. Mm-hmm. Real quick, according to something we mentioned before, what, what do you consider as a unique extracurricular activity that a high school student can get involved with? So I'm not sure, you know, if there is anything truly unique. And I'm also not sure that unique is is really important. I think it needs to be something that the student cares about, that they're excited about, and and that they're doing for themselves so that they can grow and they can learn. And and then it becomes a valuable experience. So to seek out something just because it's unique or different doesn't really get you anywhere as a human being and as a, a young person. And that will be evident in a college application. So I I would worry a lot less about unique and so much more about if it's authentic and if it it really is something that excites the the student. Yeah. Can I just say one thing about that? My daughter played lacrosse and she was in second grade, ended up quitting 
her sophomore year and ended up coaching third graders her junior year. My son ran a soccer camp for five-year-olds out of our backyard this summer. And Mm -hmm. so, so he's passionate about soccer, you know, so all of those show leadership, they show interest, they go beyond joining the club at school. And so, yeah, like you said, what is it that, that your student loves that they can take initiative on and engage in? Yeah, find out things that they they already love to do and figure out how you can share those gifts and those talents with others. I think that's a good way for your student to show who they are and their character for sure. Yes, definitely their character. All right, so it says... Okay, so I'm going to ask two more questions. A couple of them, they kind of all go together. So I'm going to ask one and then one more. Okay, so okay. what should we do if the program, the college we're applying to doesn't accept AP cre- credits, but want to see certain grades on certain exams? Should students still take the AP courses then or is it not worth it? So I'm not sure I completely understand the question. But so not all colleges will actually accept the AP as a credit, right? So is oh, it even right, but should it? you still? Oh, absolutely, is because I think that, in fact, many colleges do not accept AP credits to count toward matriculation, or but they might still accept it as a placement. So if it's a, a language, for example, and you've got a good score on the AP Spanish or AP French, then you might place into a higher level. I just think that if you've taken the class and you've done well and taking the test is not going to be a physical burden, you know, like with a mask and then take the test. You never know when it it, it can be valuable, but the, the class, you know, the fact that it doesn't give you quote unquote credit is is not necessarily a reason to to not take the test. I mean, don't take the test if I mean, the APs were at home last year. It was a debacle. It, you know, it really was. I mean, it was just a, and it, it's yeah, one of the reasons why they they were trying to roll out an at-home SAT. And after the AP exams, that got aborted. So, I, you know, again, it's like what I said about taking tests now, it, it, if, because they are going to be in, in person apparently this year. If you don't feel that it's safe, don't take the test. But if the circumstances are appropriate to take the test, there's no harm in taking it, even if the college the student's going to go to doesn't doesn't use it for for reducing the number of absolute credits you need to take to graduate. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to combine the last couple of questions because they're pretty similar. So how how do we work with you? Like, how do we get started? Are, are, are you still taking appointments? Are they in person? Are they online? And do you work with people from across the U.S. or just locally? Okay, so the way to reach out to me, there's going to be a follow-up email and it will have information. You can email me and I will have a conversation. I do a 30-minute consultation with everybody so that, you know, because the same way the college has to be a good fit, the relationship with the, the counselor has to be a good fit. And sometimes mom thinks it's a good fit and kid does not, and then it's not a good fit. So so that's the, the first way to start. Yes, I am still, I, I cap at 15. I'm not quite there yet. And with my sophomores, I'm not sure what year it is. I not only do I work with people all over um, the country, but I actually had two twins in China this year. They, they had originally been New York based and then they left because of COVID. But I can't wait for the students who are in the, close by to be able to meet in person. But I can do it virtually. And I certainly obviously will continue to do that with the students who are far away. I think both models work. There are people who've been virtual. I mean, this was actually a profession that lends itself pretty well to 
virtual and there were people who always worked virtually. But, you know, in an ideal world, if if you're close by, then we, we could meet in person. But the kids like it. They like the virtual. I mean, you know, they don't mind it at all. There's no traveling. And so I will meet the student where the student is. And, and that, again, is, you know, why it's personalized and, and high touch. All right. All right. Well, I thought this was fantastic. I even learned more, which I will apply <laughs> to my sophomore and my eighth grader. But thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Kimberly. If you want to dig deeper into what we've talked about on the podcast each week, check out the Build Your Best Family Facebook group. It's where we hang out with some fabulous women to practice what we've learned. There's also encouragement, group coaching, and incredible resources there too. Remember, family culture is not about perfect. It's about purpose.